Good afternoon, and welcome to Outer Cape News on WOMR. My name is Matthew Dunn. This is your update on what's happening on the Outer and Lower Cape, drawing on stories reported in the pages of the Provincetown Independent, the Provincetown Banner, the Cape Codder, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. In this week's edition, we've got the results of the recent election in Wellfleet, as well as the story of a new superintendent coming to the Cape Cod National Seashore. Will David is off this week, but Ira Wood is here, and he's got a matter of opinion about a dead man running. In Wellfleet's election this week, Tim Sayre defeated write-in candidate Kurt Felix by seven votes to fill the vacant select board seat. 32% of the town's 3,000-plus registered voters cast ballots in Wednesday's election. Voters also approved two Proposition 2.5 ballot questions by a wide margin, one to appropriate $2.6 million for the design, permitting, and building of a wastewater treatment system for the Lawrence Road Housing Project, Police, and Fire Stations, and Elementary School. The other appropriates $145,000 for a new town planner position. The new position will support the Building Commissioner and the Zoning Board of Appeals in zoning enforcement and will assist in developing bylaws and housing initiatives. Over the course of his short write-in campaign, Felix said he had faced intense criticism from community members because of his pest control franchise, the Cape Cod Mosquito Squad. Much of a Meet the Candidates night hosted by the Wellfleet Community Forum on September 21st centered on Felix's business. Participants asked whether the company uses toxic chemicals and if it has been the subject of enforcement action from the State Department of Environmental Protection. Felix denied both accusations. Sarah will complete Kathleen Bacon's unexpired term on the board. That seat will be up for re-election, along with John Wolfe's seat in May 2024. Brian Karlstrom, who has served as superintendent for the Cape Cod National Seashore since April 2018, will begin a new role as Deputy Regional Director of the Intermountain Region of the National Park Service on October 8th. The National Park Service announced that Jennifer Flynn will become the superintendent of the Cape Cod National Seashore in November. Flynn has been with the Park Service for 32 years and had her first parks job on Cape Cod. Flynn comes to the seashore after three and a half years at National Park Service headquarters in Washington, where she has been associate director for visitor and resource protection. There, she was responsible for security and law enforcement-related services, including fire management and the U.S. Park Police. Before that, Flynn spent 10 years as superintendent and deputy superintendent of Shenandoah National Park in Virginia. Flynn started her career with the Park Service 32 years ago as a temporary employee at the Cape Cod National Seashore. Seashore Deputy Superintendent Leslie Reynolds will serve as acting superintendent until Flynn arrives. Her appointment comes as the Park Service faces intense criticism over its decision to lease eight of the 18 dune shacks in the Peaked Hill Bars Historic District under terms that violate the Dune Shacks Historic District Preservation and Use Plan. 
The leasing contest has been condemned by the Truro and Provincetown Select Boards and state and federal legislators. Carlstrom defended the leasing process, but largely refused to answer questions about it at a recent appearance before the Provincetown Select Board. Rich Delaney, former chair of the Cape Cod National Seashore Advisory Commission, who was recently appointed to a reconstituted advisory board by Secretary of the Interior Deb Halen, is looking forward to Flynn's arrival. Delaney plans to brief Flynn on the commission's capacity to serve as a liaison between the seashore and the towns. The commission was disbanded for a time by the Trump administration in 2018. Delaney said that the advisory commission could have provided a forum for the discussion about the dune shacks had it been in operation. Originally authorized in 1961, the advisory commission was created to ensure communication between the seashore and the six towns within its boundaries. Its members, including representatives from the county and state, make recommendations to the superintendent. The commission's work was halted in 2018 and reauthorized in January of this year. Art Otterino, chair of the East Ham Select Board, said that the towns used to have a great working relationship with the seashore, but that's changed. He's hoping the tide will now turn. Otterino said he thought Carlstrom's leaving is the best thing that could happen for the area. East Ham is experiencing its own conflict with the Park Service over parking at Nosset Light Beach. On that issue, the park is also accused of violating a past agreement with the town, which was rooted in the 1965 deed that conveyed the beaches from the town to the seashore. Otterino said that East Ham is prepared to take legal action if the issue can't be resolved with the new superintendent. The large horse chestnut tree in front of the Eldridge Public Library in Chatham was granted a reprieve several years ago, but that may be about to change. The tree was slated to be sacrificed as part of a 2019 project to reconfigure the sidewalk and lawn in front of the historic library. Town boards sought changes to the plan to save the tree, but before things could progress any further, the COVID pandemic and other more pressing needs of the library building put the landscaping and sidewalk plan on hold. The plan is back, however, and while not yet finalized, the basic details haven't changed. It still calls for raising the level of the lawn and building a retaining wall along an expanded sidewalk while reconfiguring the walkway that leads to the library's front entrance. Because the tree's roots are hard up against the current sidewalk, implementation of the plan would require extensive cutting and removing of the roots, likely endangering the health of the tree. Because it's a public shade tree, within the town-owned road layout, a public hearing is required before it can be removed. That hearing was delayed by the retirement of Park and Recreation Director Dan Tobin last year. Tobin was also the town's tree warden, a position mandated by law to carry out the hearing. Last week, the select board voted to appoint Tobin interim tree warden in order to conduct a hearing on the removal of the horse chestnut, as well as a Norway maple on Library Lane that will have to be removed as part of the project as well. The October 3rd hearing will also include a proposal to remove 32 trees along George Ryder Road to make way for a bike path extension approved at May's annual town meeting. 
The library's plan is apparently necessary to meet accessibility requirements and to improve safety along the sidewalk. The plan calls for adding at least two more trees to the front lawn to make up for the loss of the horse chestnut and the maple. But the loss of the large horse chestnut will create a significant void in the streetscape. It's estimated that the tree dates from the 1930s. The rear parking lot of the library will also be reconfigured as part of the plan. Both the Planning Board and Historic Business District Commission must review the plan. The October 3rd hearing will take place at 5.30 p.m. as part of the Select Board meeting. The Provincetown Book Festival takes place this weekend, Friday through Sunday, at the Provincetown Library on Commercial Street. Keynote speaker Ilian Wu will speak with Emmy-winning news reporter Susan Tran at 6.30 p.m. on Saturday. Wu is the author of Master, Slave, Husband, Wife, an epic journey from slavery to freedom. The book tells the story of a young enslaved married couple, Ellen and William Craft, who make their escape in 1848 when Ellen disguised herself as a wealthy disabled white man and William pretended to be his slave. The festival also will focus on another book related to race in American history, Anastasia Kerwood's Shirley Chisholm, Champion of Black Feminist Power Politics. Shirley Chisholm made history as the first African-American congresswoman and later as the first black woman to run for the U.S. presidency. Kerwood and Bob Frischman, Chisholm's former speechwriter, will take part in a conversation at the festival at 1.30 p.m. on October 1st. This year's Rose Dorothea Award will be presented to Provincetown native Frank Xavier Gasper. Gasper's first novel, Leaving Pico, won the Barnes & Noble Discovery Prize and the California Book Award and was named a New York Times Notable Book. Gasper is the author of six collections of poetry and two novels, most of which incorporate his Provincetown upbringing and family roots. A reception will be held today, Friday, September 29th at 6 p.m. More festival information is available at provincetownbookfestival.org. For Outer Cape News, this is Beth Dunn. In Harwich, Don Yanutzi Jr. is the new Director of Natural Resources. Yanutzi was appointed to the director's position five weeks ago after being hired as a deckhand in the town's harbor department last December. He has since become a certified harbor master, and he's also working remotely on a bachelor's degree in environmental studies at Southern New Hampshire University. Yanutsi will also serve as shellfish constable and assistant harbormaster. Yanutsi has spent time at the town's shellfish lab where seed is nurtured, and he has worked with former director of natural resources Heinz Proft, Harwich Conservation Trust, and AmeriCorps staff in cleaning the Herring River to assure easy passage for herring migrating into spawning headwaters. Prior to coming to the Cape a year and a half ago, Yanutsi owned a small construction business in Pennsylvania. Town Administrator Joseph Powers called the new director a dedicated self-starter who rises to the occasion.
Yunutsi said he'll be busy with the propagation and management of the shellfish now in the town laboratory on Witchmere Harbor. The shellfish will be transplanted to commercial and recreational shellfish grounds in the next couple of weeks. Yunutsi is looking for a few new volunteers to serve in the shellfish oversight capacity, which includes working in the lab and conducting some enforcement. The department also uses volunteers when monitoring the herring run each spring. There's been a moratorium on the taking of herring since 2004 due to major reductions in the numbers of fish making their way to spawning headwaters, but the town has been given permission to allow a minimal harvest based on more recent increases in annual herring counts. Yunutsi said he's very pleased with the cooperative nature of the employees that work out of the harbor master's office at Sacquatucket Harbor. Yunutsi's office is also located in the harbor master's office. The story of Orleans begins thousands of years ago with the Nauset tribe, but efforts to educate people about the town's indigenous history have fallen short according to Select Board Chair Michael Herman. At next month's special town meeting, an article will go before voters in hopes of changing that. Article 16 seeks $15,000 to begin outreach to better promote Orleans and the Lower Capes' indigenous culture. The article follows on the heels of a change to the preamble of the town charter to include language recognizing the Nauset and Wampanoag tribes, who settled the region before it was inhabited by white settlers. The change was approved by town meeting voters in May of 22 and was officially adopted at the annual town election in May of 23. Herman said the article furthers the town's commitment to properly recognizing the town's indigenous history and population. He said the funding is an attempt to demonstrate the town's intent on working with the Wampanoag tribe in Mashpee and other indigenous groups and organizations. For tribe members such as Stephen Peters, that attempt counts for something. Peters' company Smoke Signals develops media campaigns for groups and organizations looking to dispel traditional narratives in favor of a more accurate accounting of their history. Peters says there's been a huge increase in the number of museums, schools, and libraries looking for ways to share the history and culture of Native Americans in a more inclusive and accurate way. The tribe has not yet had conversations with Orleans about a partnership, but Herman said those conversations should get underway if funding is approved by voters on October 16th. The $15,000 would be used for initial planning for any events or efforts that might come out of the town's discussions with the tribe. That could include paying for tents, a sound system, or other logistical needs. While other towns on the Cape, including Eastham and Provincetown, have taken efforts to improve awareness about the region's indigenous history, Peters said Orleans' approach is unique in that the town is seeking to work directly with the tribe in its outreach and education. Over time, Peters said he hopes those efforts will plant the seeds for what he calls a more accurate retelling of the area's indigenous history. There's help available if you're having a hard time making your rent payments. If you live or work in East Ham, 
if you live in or work for the town of Truro, or if you live in Dennis, Provincetown, or Wellfleet, and need help paying for your rent, you may qualify for up to three years of rental assistance. The Homeless Prevention Council is working with these towns to provide rental assistance to year-round residents. Eligibility criteria is based on town of residence, employment, and annual income. Case managers can help determine which types of housing support, including rental assistance, you may be eligible for. You may qualify for rental assistance for up to three years, and a Homeless Prevention Council case manager can help develop an individualized plan for you. For more information, you can visit hpccapecod.org, email help at hpccapecod.org, call 508-255-9667, or visit the Homeless Prevention Council office at 8 Main Street in Orleans. And speaking of Orleans, Garrett Dutton has played music festivals all over the world, but nothing compared to the one he staged at Nauset Beach. Better known to fans as G-Love, Dutton lives just down the road from Nauset Beach in Orleans. The Cape Cod Roots and Blues Festival drew music fans from all across the region to the beach in 2018 and 19. Jointly organized by Hog Island Beer Company and the nonprofit Friends of Nauset Beach, the concert raised the bar for live music on the Lower Cape while also raising money for the town. But COVID halted the festival's momentum, forcing its shutdown in 20, 21, and 22. Now, four years after its last iteration, organizers are bringing a rebranded and scaled-down festival back to the beach. The Outermost Roots and Blues Festival returns to Nauset October 7th with a lineup headlined by G-Love and rounded out by Jacob's Castle, Tijon Street Corner Thieves, and Jackson Weatherby. A rain date of October 8th has been set for the event. Organizers went before the select board in June to discuss plans for reviving the festival. While the event attracted 3,600 concert goers in 2019, this year's festival will host 1,250 people in an effort to allay concerns about parking and traffic at the beach. There were also concerns about the ability of police, fire, and public works officials to accommodate the event due to short staffing, but those departments gave their support to plans to bring the festival back to Nauset. The back section of the upper lot at Nauset will accommodate the stage, as well as beverage and food vendors and other merchants, toilets, and a first aid tent. The adjacent lot will be used for staff and band parking, while the beach's lower parking lot will accommodate parking for festival goers. Dutton will headline the October 7th event, and he's bringing a nine-piece band with him. He's also set to headline a smaller pre-festival set for VIP ticket holders at Hog Island on October 6th. Organizers are hopeful that with a successful 2023 event, they'll be able to grow the festival in 2024. The Outermost Roots and Blues Festival takes place next weekend, but this weekend it's the 9th Annual Vinegrass Music Festival at Truro Vineyards on Sunday, October 1st, 
featuring an eclectic mix of music steeped in Americana and bluegrass styles. The festival will feature national bands on the main stage, with several regional musicians on the pavilion stage. Vinegrass will also be celebrating 10 years as an organization and over $100,000 in musical scholarships, grants, and instruments that the festival has awarded over the years to students, teachers, and schools on Cape Cod. Vinegrass Executive Director Pete Fasano said the idea for the festival came about when he produced a jazz show with Cape Cod-based musician Monica Rizzio in 2013 at Truro Vineyards. After producing a few concerts at various Mid-Cape venues, Fasano and Rizzio approached Kristen Roberts at Truro Vineyards about doing a festival. She was fully on board, and after missing just one year due to COVID, the partnership between Vinegrass and the Vineyard is as strong as ever. Each year, Vinegrass awards several scholarships, and Vinegrass shows have always been free to students under 15. Rizzio said she wants the kids to see the music, meet the musicians, and to know that it's possible to do what you love. Fasano said he's proud that the organization provides direct financial support to musicians. While he and Rizzio produce concerts to introduce the public to Americana and bluegrass music, he said their hearts and souls have always been dedicated to charitable giving. This year's Vinegrass Music Festival will feature the High Hawks, The Last Revel, Twisted Pine, Monica Rizzio's Roundup, and more. Truro Vineyards is on Shore Road in North Truro. The gates open at 11 a.m. on Sunday the 1st. Parking is at Truro's Head of the Meadow parking lot starting at 11, with shuttle service provided by the Funk Bus. Food will be available from the Blackfish Food Truck, and wine, spirits, and soft drinks will be sold by the Vineyards. There will be several local vendors and artisans, along with artist and vinegrass merchandise. Tickets and information are available at vinegrass.org. For Outer Cape News, my name is Matthew Dunn. My hometown of Wellfleet can be a mysterious place where inexplicable things happen. Not long ago, we lost three-quarters of a million dollars. Nobody in town hall knew where it went. Two town administrators and two town accountants quit during the shelf life of a box of linguine. Nobody knows why. And this past week, a dead man was in the running for the Board of Selectmen. It used to be that there were always two or more candidates running for a board seat. When I first ran, there were six. That was because the 1980s and 90s brought a profusion of very special retirees to the town, folks who were well-educated and fiercely civic-minded, folks who chose not to suffer brain death by retiring in Florida. They unseated the town boss, they wrote the town charter, and the comprehensive plan. They filled the seats of every town committee, and many ran for the Board of Selectmen. One by one, however, they aged out or passed away. But while all this was happening, the world changed, and the town along with it. 
Homes became investment opportunities and house prices soared. Young families moved away. Those that managed to stay had to work two or more jobs. Then along came the internet and Facebook and COVID and a kind of angry civic frustration that turned meetings into opportunities to vent. Overworked and feeling disregarded, the young generation, those that were left, were disinclined to run for public office. Why put up with all the nastiness? And besides, who had the time? So, for this week's Wellfleet special election, held because an elected member of the board resigned in frustration, there were two middle-aged candidates, one an admitted Republican and the other a long-time Democrat. This should not matter, of course, not when the Wellfleet Charter specifically states all town elections shall be nonpartisan. But this being America in 2023, where everything is partisan, it certainly did matter. The Republican was on the defensive from the get-go, claiming that his losses in the past select board races stemmed from a smear campaign about his political affiliations. In the Provincetown Independent, he insisted there was a lot of misinformation going around town about him, including a story that he had participated in the attack on the U.S. Capitol. Vehemently defending himself, he said, if that were true, the Secret Service would have already arrested me. Not the strongest self-defense for belonging to a party that favors criminalizing abortion, cutting taxes for the rich, and Medicaid for the poor. Not in a Democratic-leaning town. So, it should have been a no-brainer that the Democrat would win, except that on top of all his good work with the environment, he happened to operate a mosquito control franchise that's been linked to killing bees. Even longtime Democrats didn't know what to do. In response, a small grassroots campaign emerged to write in Bruce McGibbon, a former attorney and an avowed fiscal conservative. Bruce conjured up images of his frugal heritage by always wearing a kilt to town meetings. His local nickname was Chainsaw McGibbon, stemming, if my memory serves, from an incident in which he encouraged an official to leave his property by chasing him with a gas-powered garden tool. He is also remembered for shooting his good friend in the foot during a card game both qualities that would bespeak his suitability for office in today's political climate, in Congress, if not for selectmen. One street sign advertised Wellfleet's frustration. It said, what's the use? Write in Bruce, except that Bruce died five years ago. He was a long shot, to be sure. But the race looked tight. Street signs sprouted for all the candidates. Facebook lit up with sarcastic comments. Republicans were urged to get out and vote. Many Democrats said they wouldn't vote. The outcome was up in the air. And on election night, the Republican got 433 votes. The Democrat, 
426. And Bruce McGibbon, 16 votes. The inexplicable had happened once again. A dead candidate had spoiled the election. Just proving in Wellfleet anything can happen. I'm Ira Wood, and that's my opinion. And that does it for this week's edition of Outer Cape News. Thanks go to the Provincetown Independent, the Provincetown Banner, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. Thanks also to Beth Dunn and Ira Wood for their contributions to the program. And thanks to Jacob Greenberg and Henry and Jane Fisher for being sustaining members of Outer Cape News. And now stay tuned for Friday Afternoon Jazz. It's Lush Life with Scott Penn on listener-supported Outermost Community Radio. WOMR.